Well, good morning. Morning, familiar faces. Morning, new faces. If you're a guest here, thanks for coming and hanging out with us. You come and you jump in in the middle of a series we're doing. Well, not in the middle. Well, I guess we're still in the middle, right? Uh, we're working through the book of Acts and we're asking the question. So as a church here, for those who haven't been around, as a church here, and um, we're in a new season as a church. I started here it's about nine months ago. And we're asking the question, how do we recover the vision of what it means to be sent? And so we're working through the book of Acts, trying to give ourselves a, a little uh, kick up the rear end and a little bit of uh, vision and excitement about what it means to be sent out into the world. So we're working our way through Acts um, this week. We're in Acts chapter 19, which is actually just a continuation of 18. The, uh, the events in 18 carry on into 19. So we're going to be looking kind of partway through the story today um, as Paul moves from Corinth and begins his ministry in Ephesus. Um, and this chapter, I'm going to take a little bit of a different slant to it, but this chapter is such a beautiful depiction of what we're hoping for. It's, it's a, an image of what happens transformationally in a city when the gospel takes hold. So this is a beautiful picture of revival in a city. Um, and, and so as we read it, you can look and see how does the gospel impact this place where Paul is ministering. So um, I'm going to start, I'm going to start reading just a little before at the end of 18, just so we can remember where we were last week. Um, because you've got this thing where you've got like Paul minister in Corinth, you've got Apollos in Ephesus, and then they do this kind of flip-flop, and Apollos ends up in Corinth, and, and Paul's in Ephesus, and so it's just good to see a little bit of context. But we're, we're going to read through this, and then afterwards I'm going to walk through five kind of deficiencies and ways we can approach Christianity. So let's start, um, this is Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 18, and we'll read from here through the end of 19. So Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, his hair cut off at Centria because of a vow that he'd taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. And then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church, then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah." While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. 
Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took his disciples with them and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they'd done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came in to 50,000 drachma. Some commentators think that's between one and five million dollars. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who was worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. So he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. 
But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours. Yeah. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of our image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. So, so. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there's no reason for it. After he'd said this, he dismissed the assembly. When the uproar had ended, Paul set, sent for the disciples and, after encouraged them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Crazy, crazy, crazy. So Paul heads in to Ephesus. He meets these disciples who have a deficiency in their faith. He begins ministering. He's seen transformation come in the city, so much so industries are being affected. The whole city gets an uproar in defense of Artemis, publicly challenging Paul in the way. And there's this big confrontation moment. God raises up a city leader to kind of calm everything down. This big confrontation happens, Paul heads off on the next part of his journey. It's, it's, it's like crazy. Uh, these stories, sometimes I'm just like, this is in here. Um, but there, in, in this passage, when I was reading it, I, I was just really attentive. We finished the Apollos story last week with Priscilla and Aquila taking Apollos into their home and addressing the inadequacies in his faith. And then as you walk into this part of the story, really what Paul is doing is going from group to group and addressing and pointing out inadequacies and correcting the, the ways that they're thinking, everything from the idolatry of the city to these 12 men who have a, 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 an incomplete view of what it means to follow Jesus. So I want to look through the story and look at five inadequacies or five deficiencies or five counterfeits uh, in our Christianity that, that we need to be aware of and we need to address if we want to pursue Christ wholeheartedly. So the first deficiency that we encounter in the story I would call spirit-deficient Christianity says, there he found some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, which sounds like a lot of churches I know, right? <laughs> Sorry, shouldn't, shouldn't dig. Um, so these people are, are disciples of John the Baptist. We, we've encountered this before. John the Baptist was, was the man sent to prepare the way for Jesus. So he was a prophet with a message from God to go out into the world and prepare them. Repent because the kingdom is at hand. Jesus, this Messiah figure is coming. So these people have heard this message. There's a Messiah coming. They probably understand that it's Jesus. Um, but that's as far as they've gotten. Paul realizes that, that in asking this question, he sees in their life and in their ministry. Why does he ask the question, right? Like he sees something in their life and their ministry that's deficient, so he asks this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? And the answer is no. And so he goes on to explain to them that there's a different form of faith that they need to walk in that involves encountering the Spirit in a way that's going to transform their life. So 
When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, you know, what does it look like today? Who are the people today who understand the, the, the baptism of repentance but don't understand the baptism in the Spirit? And I found myself thinking about the language we use here, you know, fire insurance. Those people that encounter Jesus and you're told, if you confess your sins and give your life to Jesus, you go to heaven when you die. And their whole basis of understanding their Christian walk is like, all I needed to do was pray the prayer, and now I'm saved, and that's it. It's, I go to church, be a good person, whatever. But I don't need to live out this faith on a daily basis. Um, a deficiency in their faith. Paul would look at them and say, no, you need to be baptized in the Spirit. What does that mean? It means your life needs to be consumed by, saturated by, compelled by, and empowered by the Spirit as He moves in and through you into the world round about. Um, some of us have a, a Spirit-deficient faith. Um, it may look like fire insurance. It may also look like here I am doing my Christianity without the Spirit. I read my Bible without them. I attend church without them. Uh, I may attempt to share the gospel, but usually if you're Spirit deficient, you won't even try that because he's usually the one compelling you. Usually Spirit deficient faith is I'm dealing with these sin issues in my life. There's some lust issues. There's some anger issues. Uh, there's some materialism. And, and when I realize I've got them, I just white knuckle it. And I use every ounce of strength and willpower and technique I can find to fix it. Um, which is not the way Jesus wants us to live in our life. He has gifted us the whole story of Acts. Jesus comes, dies, raises from the dead, pours out the Spirit, and says, this Spirit is now the one that's going to teach you all the things that I taught. It's going to compel you. It's going to empower you. It's going to bear fruit in you. Um, so when you look at your life, are you more like the disciple of John the Baptist or are you more like the spirit-filled believer? Like, are you walking in a spirit-deficient faith where you understand the truth of Scripture but you don't know what it is to encounter the power of God moving in and through you? Are you fighting to bear fruit in your life rather than having the Spirit working through you, bearing fruit in your life because He brings the life of Christ to bear on your soul? Uh, there's a lot of people in the world round about us. There's a lot of people in the church in this part of the world that are walking in a spirit-deficient Christianity. But we can't live and walk the way Jesus wants us to unless the Spirit has full reign in our life. The second deficiency that I would say we encounter in here, he's not addressing this issue, but based on what I see, I think this is another element of deficiency that we experience in the church today. And I, I would call it occasional Christianity. <laughs> There's this moment where he's going to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. He took the disciples with him, and he had discussions daily in the lecture hall. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia had heard the word of the Lord. What we tend to live today, you could call it compartmentalized Christianity, right? We, we, we go to church on a Sunday. If you're part of a small group, you go to the small group during the week. You might get up in the morning and do your devotional time, but that's kind of it. And the rest of your life is yours to do with as you want. A anyone experience this? Like, like, I, I feel like I'm preaching to myself, right? <laughs> um, the church in the West looks a lot like occasional or compartmentalized Christianity. So when you look at the New Testament, the, the thing you see over and over and over again are the disciples, the church, coming together daily in prayer, seeking the truth out in the work of evangelism. 
Uh, and when I go to places like uh, India, when I am in South America, when I look at these thriving churches in other countries, what I see is believers that get together in prayer and fellowship every single day. And then I see them out there sharing the gospel every day, and I see their churches growing. And then I see over here, uh, uh, and here, including in Scotland, I see a version of Christianity. It's like you do church kind of a couple of times a week. If there's someone that you really like, you might see them three times in the week between church and your small group and hanging out for coffee. But we do this like a couple of times a week, fellowship with believers, and then we ask ourselves, why am I not seeing more fruit? We end up with like two hours of Jesus time trying to compete with the rest of our week. And we wonder why we're not compelled out into the world to do things differently. Then you think about the people that you're trying to share the gospel with. You're like, you know, I, I get together this person once every three months and I really, really try and share the gospel. Um, and that's a good thing. Keep doing it. Keep up the good work. You might want to try and increase the frequency of contact. Um, but who are the people that you would be encountering daily when you look at Paul and his daily encounter? Like, it's the people that you work with, except in COVID when you're working from home. <laughs> the people that you work with that you see every day that are your opportunities to share the gospel. It's the neighbors that you wave to every morning that is your opportunity to share the gospel. It's, it's the family members you're around. I just, I find myself wondering, and I've said this before, what if as a church we were more intentional about doing stuff together daily? What if we met daily to pray rather than once a week? What if we studied the scriptures daily rather than just one class for nine weeks in the summer? What would happen if we prioritized evangelizing daily rather than we're going to do one event in like six months and kind of drive things forward like that? We, we've we slipped into this occasional Christianity and, and in part because it's the model that's been handed to us and it's the church that we're brought up in. When I, when I am on the phone to my, the, my students and whatever in India and they're asking about church, like they, they're like, can you preach on Wednesday? No, I can't do it. Can you do Thursday? Can you do the morning? Can you do the evening? Like what? Because they're like doing it all day, every day and seeing so much fruit. Um, so, so how do we walk away from this deficiency of walking in occasional Christianity uh, into a fuller daily community of people who are encountering God and studying his word together? Third deficiency, I would call superstitious Christianity. Um, and I think lots more of us are guilty of this than you'd think. Uh, there's this crazy part in the middle of the story. It says, God did extraordinary miracles. Some translations translate this, unusual miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched them were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. Um, <laughs> So I've got a bunch of handkerchiefs. I've prayed over them. You can buy them for 10 bucks each. <laughs> uh, and that'll pay for my floor. No. Uh, <laughs> There's this beautiful moment in this story, uh, in th this chapter, as we understand, like, the whole Artemis cult that exists in Ephesus was a superstitious and magic-ridden uh, religion. Um, you can read books that look at the, the Artemis cult in, in ancient, uh, in ancient uh, Ephesus, and, and, and you read about the crazy things they did, but it, it was about superstition. It was about um, magic formulas. You saw it, you, or we'll see it, with the, the sons of Sceva that think I can just use this phrase, go out in Jesus' name, uh, and I've got a magic formula that's going to do the things that, that, 
that we want to do. This was common practice, actually. Uh, go, go sit something in the temple, leave it there for a week, go back and pick it up, and now you can take the holiness and, and plop it on someone and ask Artemis to bring fertility uh, in the midst of your infertility. There's, there's this beautiful moment here where God is so gracious. I think God is, is using the superstitious practice of the people round about as an inroad to draw them to Jesus. This would be common practice for them, um, and I think God is capitalizing on, on, on that interest that they have to bring them to him, not just so that they can go about their superstitious ways, but he uses these means to draw them in. There are lots of ways where maybe not getting handkerchiefs and, and hoping someone touches them to heal. There are lots of ways we walk in superstition in our Christianity today. Um, and for some people, it's what you're watching the God channel on TV and you see someone offering a holy handkerchief for a hundred bucks and you're going on and you're buying it out of the hopes that if I just put this handkerchief on my leg, it's going to be healed. Uh, don't do that, right? <laughs> don't buy it. Um, but the superstition that we typically walk in looks and sounds like this. Man, my day really sucked today probably because I didn't do my devotions this morning. Hmm. Doing your devotions equals a good day. Bad day is the result uh, of the superstitious practice of keeping your day good by having your devotions in the morning. It looks like, oh, my week's horrible. It's probably because I didn't go to church. I miss church this week. That's the reason everything is bad this week. We have superstitious ways that we approach our Christianity. What, what is superstition? It's, it's a belief that a certain practice can control an outcome. Christianity is not about engaging in certain practices to control the outcome. Christianity is about engaging in the practice of steeping in Scripture so that we're saturated in truth so that we can bear truth in the world and stand against the lies of the enemy. It's, Christian practice is about engaging in activities that bring us face to face with our Savior, the power of the Spirit, the God of the universe, to encounter Him so that we're changed, so that we walk differently in the world. Um, but a lot of what we end up doing is, I've got, to, I've got to be at this thing. I've got to read my Bible at this time. I've got to be at church on Sunday. And if I don't, everything's going to fall apart. We're walking in a superstitious Christianity. Um, Part of that is, you know, if I don't say grace before my meal, <laughs> we joke with our kids when we're doing grace. It's like, you didn't say grace, you're going to die of food poisoning. Uh, <laughs> we're scarring them. But, but, <laughs> but no, like, we're just trying to help them understand it's not about saying the prayer to make the food edible. It's about pausing to have gratitude to God for the thing that we have. If you don't say it, it doesn't mean your meal's spoiled. It doesn't mean God's unhappy. Um, but it, it, it's an act that we do to engage. There's so many ways that our practices, the way we go about our faith, actually looks more like superstition and a superstitious Christianity that does look like the active pursuit of Christ as we're walking in the world. Uh, and, and I say all of that, I don't want to diminish the miracles that happened in this passage. Paul is not, this is not a bad thing that happened. It's, we've got the moment with Peter where, where people are healed because his shadow passes over them. We've got the, uh, the moment with the woman with the blood issue touching the hem of Jesus' robe. 
the, the reality of the miraculous is the power of God moving through the, the life of a Christian and the faith of a person to bring healing and wholeness in their life. And, and there are lots of crazy ways that he does that. I'm sure you've got your own crazy stories of what he did. Um, Let's praise and celebrate the God who capitalizes on our brokenness to draw us to him, but let's guard against allowing superstition to take the place of our faith. Um, the fourth deficiency in, in this, this passage is one, to some degree, there's passages like this that terrify me a little bit. Um, but I, I'm going to call this power-fixated Christianity. You could also describe it as Jesus deficient or Jesus missing Christianity. It says some Jews were driving around, uh, were, were, sorry, they're not driving around, they're walking around or charioting around. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon possessed. In the name of Jesus, I command you to come out. One day the evil spirit answered, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? This is a group of people who are, they're, they're trying to engage in the things of God separate from an intimate relationship with Jesus. And again, there's lots of churches out there that are like this. They're so fixated on the power of God, so fixated on seeing miraculous things happen, and they barely mention Jesus when they're preaching. Um, there are lots of ways that we, as the church, we, 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 we struggle because we say, I'm praying and I really want to see this thing happen. I want the power of God to break through, but, but yeah, I didn't really have time to spend any time with them today. I don't really have a prayer life. I don't know the word very well. Um, and so we're in that boat of like, we want the power of God to work, but a lot of the time we're not actually putting in the effort to know Christ and gain the spiritual authority that he wants to give us to see these things happen. God is gracious that the tiniest prayer of the tiniest person in their greatest brokenness can move his hand and do the miraculous. And because he's gracious, um, in the midst of our greatest sin, we can cry out to God and despite us out of love for a situation, he can move. But what he asks for in scripture is, is that we grow in righteousness and holiness and that the prayers of the righteous person are powerful and effective. Um, so we want to walk in those. We want to be people that walk in spiritual authority and deep connection with Jesus, not, not people who, are, uh, who the enemy is going to look at and go, I, I don't know you. You're trying to invoke the power of God. I don't know who you are. In this moment, they reduced faith in Jesus and his power to a magic formula. This, at this point, it's an incantation. In the name of Jesus, I command you to leave is an incantation if it's done apart from intimacy with Jesus. And, and we have lots of things that, again, this is closely related to the superstition. We have lots of things we use as incantations. God bless this food to my body, right? It can be a statement of faith or it can be an incantation to make this food good and work in my body. Like, blah, 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 God, I, I want the Ferrari, I want the big house, I want a new job in Jesus' name, because that makes it all right, right? Now I'm going to get it, because I used the formula that means God has to answer. Um, we don't want to reduce faith to magic formulas. We don't want to seek the power of God without seeking Him. The power of God should be the side effect of a deep abiding relationship with him. And I've used this phrase, it's all about spiritual authority. What is spiritual authority? I want to be a man who walks in spiritual authority. How do you get it? It comes from time with Jesus. 
Not time studying scripture, not time casting words into heaven, time with Jesus. And what does that look like? It means pouring over scripture to understand the truth, to know who he is, to know the promises that we stand on, to know the identity that we have. It comes from standing on scripture so that when we're speaking words, they carry the weight of heaven behind them. And it also involves prayer and seeking God's face, encountering his spirit, coming into his presence. Uh, and through all of that, change, uh, submitting to the Spirit so our life is transformed. So we become more holy, more righteous, more fruit of the Spirit and less fruit of the flesh at work in us. That's spiritual authority. The Word of God uh, was, uh, uh, I was going to say Adam Sandler, Matt Chandler. <laughs> Two very different people. Matt Chandler is like a solid Christian dude and Adam Sandler is really funny. Uh, <laughs> Matt Chandler said, you know, I want to be so full of the scriptures. He says, I want to be so saturated in the scriptures that if you cut my arm, I'd bleed the word. I was like, I want that. I want to be so saturated in scripture that if you cut my arm, I'd bleed the word. Like that's someone striving for spiritual authority, not just knowledge of scripture, but that it permeates your life. Um, intimate encounter with God that's transformative. If we were the kind of people that saturate ourselves in Scripture so that it bleeds out of us, that take the time to encounter Him uh, and seek His transformation, there is nothing that we won't be able to do as a church. Now picture all of us doing that individually and picture all of us I'm not saying this is what we're going to do. I mean, I'd love to do this. Picture all of us doing it individually daily. Picture all of us doing it together daily, which seems to be the image here. Seeking God together. Then imagine what happens when someone comes in here that's sick and we together stand around them seeking God's will and praying for healing. Then look at the people out there and their brokenness that are bound by lies. And we walk up to them and we say, let me speak truth into your life. What would happen? Um, we want the power of God, but I want to be a church that walks in the full power of God, but grounded in Jesus, deeply intimate with him, seeking his will and standing on his word. Fifth deficiency. You could call this a stretch, but it's not. <laughs> I, I wrote here, I, I'm going to let you change these words, materialistic or nationalistic Christianity, and here's what sparked this in me. In the story of the encounter with Artemis, as, as um, these people are in uproar at the, the change that Christianity is doing, there's this moment uh, where he speaks and says, people, there's a danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, we're going to lose money, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. Artemis that's been worshipped all over Asia. And we're the central point and the guardians of it. So these people, they're not Christians, clearly, but these people have a mindset around their faith. And what's the mindset? It brings me money, and it's about our cultural civic identity. And, and, and for Ephesus, the whole identity of Ephesus was built around this temple of Artemis, what that meant for them and the, their kind of role of guardians of this religion that was worshipped all over Rome. 
So you have this, this combination of their, their, their national identity and their pursuit of wealth that is guiding and governing their religion. And, and when, I, when I was reading this line as I was praying about it, I was like, you know, the funny thing is, this sounds more like some of the Christians that I hear speaking than some of the other people that, that I listen to in the world. Like, I, I love Jesus so long as it doesn't touch my bank book, right? I'll give generously so long as I have enough money to do all the things that I want to do. Um, and then in each country I'm in, whether it's Scotland, whether it's England, whether it's India, whether it's uh, here, whether it's places in South America, I mean, every church in every country has a version of nationalistic approach to their spirituality. You try going to Rome, spend time in Italy, the, the, the head of the Catholic Church, and, and see kind of the approach that they have. You go to a place like Poland, when, when uh, who was two popes ago, Joseph Ratzinger, um, no, John Paul. Put John Paul was Polish. And the Polish people believed that he was the reincarnation, the, the second coming of Jesus, that he'd returned and that, that Poland was now going to be the center of God's work moving forward. So like every country has a way that they begin to, to take their hope uh, for their civic identity. They begin to push it on to their Christianity. Um, and I think we have to be, be aware of this. I, I find myself... I have this practice that I do, I, I did it a couple of days ago, where there are theological issues that I'm wrestling with. Um, and, and it's, okay, I'm, I'm hearing these things being, be, being spoken, or like this is a, a, a diehard, like Christians in this country need to do this. I call Rufus in India. And I say, Rufus, help me think through, like here's the topic, like baptism. What age would you baptize a child? Like how old do they have to be? Like 9, 10, 12, 14, I'm like, talk me through what this looks like in your context. And, and it'll talk me through it. Like the women, can women, can women stand up and speak in a church? Like talk me through it in your, your context. If a woman can't speak in a church, the Church of India doesn't exist. And I, I'm like, okay, like we've got to be able to step outside of the bubble of what we've got here. Like the Bible is supposed to apply to all cultures over all of time. Uh, so we've got to be able to look at Scripture and, and, and say, okay, this is what it looks like in our context, but does this apply other places? And if it doesn't, then we've got to question, is this, is this actual biblical truth or is this our cultural version of that biblical truth? Um, uh, anyway, I'm ranting. <laughs> the, the other side to this is, is syncretism. So taking, taking other beliefs, other faiths, uh, other practices, and we just kind of blend them in with our Christianity. Um, and, and so it's, you know, I can, I can do, I can do the, the Christianity with the Buddhist practices. I can do the Christianity with the Hindu temple worship. Uh, I, I, can, I, I can do all the New Age stuff. I can go see a spiritualist and do my Christianity. That's part of this. This deficiency is taking things that don't belong in our faith and blending them in and making them part of what our faith is supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, I think it's interesting with this chapter, they're in Ephesus. You've got the sons of Sceva with this demonic encounter. You've got the temple of Artemis. You've got this big confrontation where for two hours they're screaming at, at Paul and his people, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I can't imagine that for two hours solid. You jump into the book of Ephesians where Paul is writing to this church. So I just want you to imagine them. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. How does Paul open the book? 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not great is Artemis. Great is the God of, uh, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then you get to the end of the book. How does the book end? Chapter 6, the armor of God. We're in this battle. It's not against flesh and blood. There's a temple there. There are these people screaming their heads off. The Artemis is great. The battle's not against them principalities, powers, rulers. The battle that we have is not against power-fixated Christians. It's not against nationalistic Christians. It's not against materialistic Christians. It's not against syncretistic Christians. The battle is against the powers of darkness in the world that we're called to stand against as we bring the truth of Jesus and who he really is to the world around about us. I want to finish with just a simple statement. You know, it's the, the core of all of this. The gospel applied daily turns the world upside down. Deficient Christianity does not turn the world upside down. Deficient Christianity comes into battle with the world for sure. Deficient Christianity gives us some element of intimacy with Jesus and brings a degree of transformation but leaves us hungering for more. But a life fixed on Jesus, saturated by the Spirit, walking in holiness, the gospel, applied every day in our life, not periodically, all day, every day in our lives, it transforms a city. It causes industries to collapse and new ones to emerge. It causes lives to be changed and uh, stadiums to be emptied on a Sunday. No one's out there watching sport on Sunday morning because they're worshiping Jesus together. It affects things. I tell you, if, if that happened, people, they, they, they just move the time. <laughs> They'd move the time to a time that didn't interfere with church. We have the power in the church to do that if we were to give ourselves fully to him. So uh, as I started, you know, Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila pulled him to the side and said uh, there was inadequacy in his faith. There, there were elements of the way he was walking that weren't the way, uh, that weren't the fullness of the gospel. Today we're looking at five kind of deficits or distortions or counterfeits of Christianity that we're surrounded by in the world today. So the question becomes, which of these are you guilty of and in what ways? Or is there a different counterfeit or a different deficiency that you're walking in? Um, this whole series is because we're looking at, at, at our church and saying we've not been a sent church. So we have a sent deficiency in our church that we're trying to recover. But what are the deficiencies that you're walking in? Uh, and what would it look like to dream together about a church that, that meets around Jesus regularly, daily, in prayer and the Spirit to walk in spiritual authority in a way that can do to Portland, to Hillsborough and Portland. I always say Portland because I'm thinking Portland Metro. Um, that they can do to Portland what the gospel did in Ephesus. Do you believe he can? <laughs> do you want to see it happen? Uh, I, I think if, if, yeah, God wants to use our church, are we willing to correct our deficiencies, saturate ourselves in him, and allow him to change us as we go out into the world? Uh, let me pray, and then Dan's going to come do communion. God, I, I want to praise you for being so gracious, because the reality is there is not a single Christian in this world whose theology is flawless and whose practice is perfect. Uh, there's not been a single person outside of Jesus who's lived on this earth who's gotten it all right. Even as we, we look at Paul and his example, he said, I do things that I don't want to do and the things that I want to do I'm not doing. And yet, you take these deficient, broken people 
You endow them with the power of your spirit and you do miraculous things. Lord, I want our church to be so full of faith that even a discarded tissue would heal someone. Uh, Lord, I want to be a church that's so full of holiness uh, that, that, that when we call on the world round about, they're, they're so blown away uh, by the lives that we're living that they hunger for the intimacy with you that we have. Lord, I want to live with such authority and cultivate such spiritual authority that, that the demons go, I know your name. I know Paul. I know Jesus. I know Alliance Bible Church. Um, Lord, may we live in such a way that the demons tremble uh, because of the authority that we walk in. Um, so God, we ask with a teachable spirit, help us correct our deficiencies, open our eyes to see, and may we walk in the way of Jesus more fully, more adequately, and more powerfully. In Jesus' name.